Hello and welcome to Agents of Nonprofit. My name is Alexander Lapa, and I'm here to talk to everyday superheroes helping nonprofits using technology. Today I'm joined by guest Pei. Pei, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you so much for having me on. So Pei, on your LinkedIn profile, because we're just getting to know each other a little bit, you've got some really interesting titles. The first one is Salesforce Program Manager. Second is Consulting Trainer and Coach. But the third one is Chief Commander of the Ninja Warrior Assassins of the Future. So I'm curious, how do you introduce yourself to people that don't know you? Oh my God, I never ever use the last bit. That was a, um, when I first started on LinkedIn, I was quite intimidated by the people who were already here, who knew how to conduct themselves with really grand titles. And I thought the best way for me to jump right in is just to not take myself very seriously. And that was my way of doing that. What that basically is, is that uh, I refer to my children as uh, my ninjas only because um, some time ago I thought it would be great if um, if our children became our private army. And um, so I put them through martial arts and all sorts of things and they are not cooperating very well. So, you know, they're, they're entering the teenage years and they're nothing like ninjas. So I'm going to have to change that at some point. I never, I never introduced myself like that. I'm sorry. That, that was it. Does that answer your question? It does. And actually, I really appreciate your particular style. Uh, I've noticed that you are reading your content and going through your, uh, your LinkedIn posts. You're very authentic. You're unafraid to show people who you really are. And you've got these really creative, I think they're hand-drawn pictures of unicorns and rainbows and even poop, which I, I love. I, I just brought a smile to my face. So, I mean, it, it's part of that same brand or, or image of yourself. It, it aligns with who you are. Thank you very much. And I'm curious to know, what I think some people are afraid to be what I feel is as authentic as you are in the sense of being afraid or not being afraid, I should say, of being silly. What made you say, you know, this is who I am this is how I see things. And therefore, you know, hopefully you like what I have to share. I don't think I started out that way. I, I feel that with a lot of experience that I have behind me, I'm always trying to teach or to coach. And I'm always trying to find different ways of reaching people. And basically how the doodling came about was that my... um. My phone is a Samsung and the one that I got had a stylus and it had, it has a very, very simple drawing app, which I use. And all I did was I decided to try and convey some thoughts using stick figures and not very much else in the style of XKCD, um, whom I admire very much. The ability to convey really complex ideas through humor and basic drawing. And I thought if, if I can do the same thing, then I can get my ideas across in a way that is more accessible, more fun, less heavy than, you know, project management isn't a very fun topic. So I'm trying to make it more human uh, just with the drawings. And uh, I think I've got my daughter to thank for that. She's she's very creative, very arty, and she just allowed me to to be silly and it's okay. I love it. Um, and I'm curious, there was one post where you called your brain, you gave your brain a name called Bob. Is it true that you actually call him Bob or, or it Bob? Kind, kind of. I think 
I've, I've discovered something about human nature, which I think a lot of people know, but don't really realize. And that is, um, we all don't like to feel dumb in, in every context and you can shape it in any way you like. For example, when they say people don't like not feeling enough, that's another version of the same thing. People don't like to be unloved, unwanted, and so on. And it's all variations of the same thing. And if we, when we interact with people, if we come across like we're better, more arrogant, or maybe just simple as I can fix the problem that you have because I know more than you, even if I'm not trying to show that I'm better, but the way that you present may make the other person feel not enough. So when I'm trying to share concepts or ideas or things that I've learned, I'm very conscious of that. And so I will try and frame it in a way that doesn't take myself seriously. So if I say, you know, using my brain cell, for example, um, it makes things less intimidating, I think. So it's it's just a useful vehicle for me to explain things. So I do sometimes, and my kids know, um, I make fun of that quite a bit because Bob is just really easy to spell because it's only single cell. <laughs> do you find there's a balance though between being silly and being professional? Like, is there ever, or has there been ever a moment where, you know, you introduce yourself, you you show your colors, your vibrant colors, let's say, and yet then you might be perceived or you're worried about being perceived as unprofessional? It depends on the environment and the context. When I'm, when I've got my project manager hat on and I'm leading a team, I set a tone of how I'm expecting a project to run and there are code of conduct and there's ways of working and there are values, team values that I expect and so on. And I set all of that up um, right in the beginning. In addition to that, I also make sure that the space is very, very safe for anyone to be however they, they want to be at that moment within the context of the project. So. Once I've just set those parameters, then I am able to allow myself to relax a little bit and I can see my team. Most of the time, they'll, they'll be watching how I am and when I'm being silly, that tells them that they can also be silly as well and that creates a really good bond between everyone else. So I've never really found it very difficult to create that balance because I've already outlined the boundaries and very clear expectations from the beginning that I can, I can, Joe, I can be funny and I can be um, your friend and appear. But when it comes to project delivery, that dynamic changes and there are things that I expect to be done in a certain way. Or, you know, when you promise me something, you have to keep your promises and not just because it looks like I'm joking that I don't I won't take it seriously. So I, I set the parameters really clearly. So it's not as difficult for me to to maintain that balance. This is something that I struggle with quite a bit, actually, because in my personal life, I'm actually quite silly and I'm having challenges. I haven't figured out a way to be able to incorporate that into my professional life, probably because of fear of that balance. So I'm, I'm happy to hear that you've achieved it. And I, I look to you to see how I can 
find a way to introduce that kind of silliness in my my life as well. If you'll allow me to just share with you an anecdote that happened a bit earlier today. With pleasure. I was going out with my son and he's um he's 13, but he's much taller than me. And we were just getting ready to get to a car to go somewhere. And our neighbor was struggling with something, you know, trying to put something in her car. And I said, go, go, go and help. And uh, he was feeling very awkward and embarrassed. And, you know, and then the moment passed and I was just asking, we were talking about the feeling of embarrassment and awkwardness. And I was trying to distill with him what that emotion means. And what that actually means is there's a perception that how you view a certain situation may not match how somebody else viewed a situation. And you're worried that the mismatch is there. And when the other party realized that you've misread the situation, that they will make you feel small and silly and embarrassed. And I said, well, the problem with that is that if you feel embarrassed, you if you're worried about looking and feeling silly, then you're missing an opportunity to learn and to grow. And also this fear keeps everybody in a place that is is, is not the best place. So like if you are in a team meeting and you've got a technical team leader who's speaking in really complex technical terms and more than one person isn't brave enough to say, hey, can you just explain that bit a little bit more? If everyone felt the same way, then that clarity will not be found and the whole team will not be productive, will not be in its optimum state. And so I think we've got to dispel this fear of being silly, of asking the question of, of, of being brave enough to be seen to be maybe the one who's not the smartest in the room so that you can benefit everyone else who's feeling that way. So that's what I bring to the team is that when people can see me being that and I will share all my mistakes, my parenting fails within the team, then they feel safe to share their failures. And when they're able to share mistakes, then everyone else is going to benefit as a result. Sorry, that was a digression. No, it's actually lovely because it, it's a way of, first of all, thank you for sharing that. But it's also a way, I think, of, of really team building, of connecting with people and saying, you know, it's okay to ask questions that you might not be familiar with. It's it's opening the floor to asking questions because you're right, there's, there's, a, there's a tendency sometimes for certain people not to ask certain questions because they don't want to be perceived as less intelligent. So being able to open the floor and allow that is is only a strength. I can only see benefits to it. So you mostly focus, I guess, just because I, we're looking at your first two uh, LinkedIn titles. Are you? Would you consider yourself more of a program manager uh, or project manager or more of a coach consultant or really is a hybrid of the two? I would say that I have been a program and project manager for quite a while. I'm transitioning into the coach and training space to help Salesforce partners to find a way to get their teams delivering quality projects by doing really good discoveries and have project governance in place. I find myself enjoying that role a lot more. I do enjoy delivery and I miss having my team around me and being in the buzz and the adrenaline of really complex project delivery. But this is rewarding in a different way. So I probably have to change my title a little bit, but I'm not quite sure how yet. 
And what made you decide to make that shift if you enjoy the delivery part so much? In, that's a really good question. I think I've come from Microsoft background. So I was there in the heydays of Microsoft Windows 3.1, 3.11 with, you know, NetBuoy and NetBIOS networking protocols and Microsoft Mail, Windows 95. And during that era, to learn anything was a big pain. You'd have to subscribe to uh, to become a Microsoft partner or TechNet and get the CDs and troll through documentation, which was really poor, poor way of learning the product. So you, I'd sit down, try to install it, figure out why it's not installing, try and configure it, et cetera. And we had to learn things the really hard way. And now uh, I'm in the Salesforce world. I see Trailhead, which is such a game changer. They have done such a great job of making the product accessible to so many people. The flip side of that is that, yes, we have a lot of people who, through this really fun gamified platform, um, been able to work with the product, configure, understand what it's supposed to do. But what is lacking is the understanding of how to actually implement what you've learned in a business. So what I was seeing, not just at CAP, which was where I was working um, at that time, but also with all the other partners, is that um, because Salesforce was so successful and selling a lot of projects, uh, there was a very deep uh, talent crisis. And so we were hiring a lot of people who were certified, but not necessarily um, with the right training to actually implement. And what we found was Unless a Salesforce partner has support, has a learning and training development um, division, have very good program to support new people who are coming into the Salesforce ecosystem to learn how to implement projects, um, they were left to figure it out on their own. And that seemed to result in a lot of a lot of mess that had to be tidied up from many different angles. So the partner would have to go in and try and fix an implementation that didn't go quite right. And you had the new hire who had been left to figure out things and they made mistakes and there was not, there wasn't a very structured way of supporting them out of the mess um, because inevitably there would be some finger pointing, for example. And so it just created, I could see so many incidents of this everywhere, every, almost every partner, um, company that I, I knew of. Not, not all, not all. There were a few really good ones, but I could see this happening. And I thought, hang on, Salesforce has trailhead that provided, um, training for the product where is the uh, what i call this consulting or delivery enablement part of the whole program um and so i took some time out and i developed a curriculum to address this specific need and that's why i thought um there's a gap there i have the experience to plug that gap and uh, why don't i go ahead and give it a go and that's that's how you know my company was born Trailhead is such a great resource to learn, to self-learn. There's actually, I've noticed some of the language it uses actually is a bit silly in some of the use cases, but it's a great way, you know, for someone who just wants first exposure to Salesforce to learn about it. 
And you're right, it, it's a lot of theoretical knowledge. Uh, even if you pass all these drillhead and get all these badges, get all these certifications, you're still missing the experience itself that will really you know, take what you've learned and apply it in a real world situation. Yeah. And I've seen people who have many, many certifications and badges and stuff like that. You know, some people on LinkedIn even promote themselves by, by how many certifications that they have, but it doesn't always indicate how strong they are in an actual, you know, game time situation where they're in front of a customer and, and working on a project to have the actual knowledge to help. And then you have got people like me who started off by having no certifications for like eight years in Salesforce, got it, you know, only eight years later, that has a lot of field experience, but had no certifications. Mm-hmm. I guess there's a multi-part question is, let's start with the first one uh, in my head that, you know, how, what do you think is the, the balance between real world experience and certifications and or trailhead badges? I don't think that's quite the right question to ask o- only because we have a situation just like what you've explained. If you've been in the industry for a while, you are busy delivering and getting a certification is something that your company will probably pressure you to do because of the points that they get towards their partner's status. Um, then you've got all these new people. So just back up a little bit with the Salesforce commitment of creating all these jobs that then creates a vacuum that requires talented individuals to fill it. Then they create the trailhead learning platform where people can go and learn about the product and they are desperate for jobs. But you have all these partners and these companies who are afraid of hiring new, newly qualified, newly certified individuals because they themselves do not have the capacity to support them in the journey and the experience of implementing software. So this is the situation to ask, is it better to have somebody with experience or to have more certification? I feel that that question is asked a lot on LinkedIn, but it's not really helpful because it doesn't address the current situation. It's like saying, as an example, like, you know, pro-gun or against gun in America. There is a situation there that's very different from the UK and we can't, we're not asking the right question. It is, this is a situation. What do we do about that? So the situation is there is a talent crisis and this talent crisis, the result of that is we have swaths of people from from universities, from school, um, ex-military, from refugee force, Super moms, for example, people who are pivoting from other industries who have committed to learning that product and getting certified and wanting a job to make a living to support their family. That's the situation. Then we have, we have all these partners who are eyeballs deep in project that they've signed, uh, that they've won and not enough people to perform or implement those projects. They need more people, but the ecosystem of senior and experienced consultants are not very big. And the only way to grow them is to widen your arms and embrace all these new people who are coming in who do not have the experience. To grow the talent pool properly, you must bring them in. You must support them. You must help them understand all the things that you've learned on Trailhead are theoretical. Now, in the real life, you can do this or you can't do this or you can do this only in certain circumstance. And let's walk through 
how that might look like in a safe way so that you can build your confidence and grow into the role. That is the way to approach things. The question that people ask around, should I try and get as many certifications as I can or should I try and get the lowest, most junior job that I can so that I can put my foot um, to get my foot in the ladder is a challenging one because, like I said, you've got Salesforce partners who are very reluctant to hire newbies only because they don't have the support system in place. And so that's quite a challenging dilemma for everyone who's involved in this. What I generally tell the newbies is while you are job hunting, try and get your certification because it doesn't hurt and be honest about it and find ways to showcase your talent and polish your interview skills. And then on the partner side, I tell them, well, you need to look for attitude because everything else can be trained. And that is something you've got to bite the bullet and focus on training and invest in training and not just throw people in to projects and say, well, if you we're here, if you've got any questions, just ping them in the Slack channel. That That is so far below adequate. I don't even know how to address that. Sorry, I don't know if I've answered that question. I'm, I was on a little bit on a soapbox there. That's quite all right. But let's let's take it back a second. So it, it seems like you're saying that both are important in the sense of you want to balance. The newbies should be trying to get experience at the same time as doing certain trainings. And then partners should be open to the idea that you may have one versus the other. Like, do you actually coach both consultants and partners? And maybe you could define exactly what a partner is versus what a consultant is before we answer that question. But yeah, I'm curious to know that second part of the question would be, you know, do you work with both and and how do you work with both? Okay, sorry about that. So a Salesforce partner is um, a limited company, I guess, that's been set up by um, more than one or more individuals who are certified and who fulfill the criteria of becoming a Salesforce partner. There are many hoops that they've got to jump, uh, but that allows them to be registered as a partner, which gives them access to training and access to Salesforce in terms of getting leads to run projects. So one of the things that has happened because Salesforce has been so successful is that a lot of consultants within the ecosystem, so a consultant is an individual who works with a Salesforce partner. Salesforce partner is a company whose bread and butter involves implementing projects for organizations. So if you're a consultant with a Salesforce partner, you get the opportunity to go and uh, go into many different businesses and learn about them and find out how best to implement Salesforce and the various clouds within Salesforce suite of products to, to allow the organization to leverage the functionalities so that they can grow. So that's what a consultant is. So when I first started my company, I was aiming at, I was targeting the uh, partners because I felt that if they're able to get newbies, those newly recruited, newly certified admins and professionals up to speed in terms of their consulting skills, in terms of understanding how to implement projects, then those individuals would be billable very quickly. So for a Salesforce partner, one of the key metrics is utilization. It's how many hours of your working day 
do you bill to the customer? Do you invoice? So it's a professional services company, just like just like a lawyer would be. You put in your hours and they are invoiced uh, to the customer. So the a consultant's utilization rate is generally their key metric. It's how we are measured against um, the performance of the company and it's tied into our bonuses and and all of that. So a lot of Salesforce partners, a lot of professional services firm try to make sure that their uh, employees or their consultants are that the, their utilization rate is as high as possible. So my approach was if I can speak to partners and say, hey, I can help you get a new person, newly certified Salesforce admin to become ready to be a consultant and go and do all the things consultants do, such as running discoveries, such as running process mapping workshops, gathering requirements, writing it out, etc., in as short a time as possible, then I can help you bridge that gap. I can help you grow your team in a, a very safe way and all these people would get the jobs and the support they need. So that was my first objective and that's how I started my business going. But it's, what I found out was that what I was sharing on LinkedIn resonated with a lot of people who were individuals who want to get into the consulting space. And and so that's what I that's where I'm going as well. It wasn't intentional, but it seemed to me that a lot of people were not getting the support from their companies, whether it be an end customer or whether it's a Salesforce partner. And they've decided to come to me for coaching and for training. And that helps them level up their own skills so that they can find another role with another partner who values what they've got. So I do both sides as well. So I train new recruits for partners and I also do individual training and coaching for people just by themselves who want to level their own skills. I've noticed that partners have sometimes a tendency to misbalance the work or the time that their consultants have. In a sense, to your point, when you're billing by the hour, you want to have as many billable hours as possible, yeah. right? So you'd rather have that consultant spend as much time as possible working on projects yeah. and not so much on self-improvement. So that balance can be missed depending on where the priorities are. So it makes total sense for these consultants that do want to level up and become better at what they do to go on their own and say, look, unfortunately, my organization isn't promoting this. Therefore, I need to do it on my own and, and find people like yourself to help them do that. Is that what you've noticed as yes. well? Yes. I want to say it's very sad because a lot of people who come to me, a lot of consultants who come to me, uh, they have been through trials of fire and a lot of them are sometimes disillusioned. A lot of them have suffered burnt out, burnout uh, and, and sometimes some mental health uh, challenges as well. So where I come from in terms of the consulting life that I've led, I've been so, so lucky last 27 odd years to, to have worked with a majority of really good partners, a few bad apples, but that allowed me to see what not good looks like. And I want to help people co come into the consulting industry because it's a really great career, as, as you well know, but only with the right support. So I, those who come to me and say, look, my company isn't supporting me. Can you help me? But I'm quite disillusioned because all these things have happened and 
can you just help me skill up and also help identify um, my next opportunity? And I do know quite a few partners who do look after their guys. And so I just kind of help make some introductions and get them into where into a role that's a bit a bit better for them. Do you cover, because Salesforce is obviously a very large ecosystem at this point, uh, multiple clouds, as they call them, products that cover multiple spaces, both in, you know horizontally and vertically in the industries and different elements or different parts of functionality. Are there certain clouds or products that you focus on, or is it general enough that you can scale up anybody, any Salesforce consultant? I think what I share, what I kind of coach and teach is very technology agnostic. It's all about listening to other humans and understanding where they're coming from and practicing a lot empathy and with Socratic questioning and critical thinking, what we want to do is try and understand what's causing them pain. Is it what they think it is? Or if not, let's help explore what what's that thorn that's causing the most pain and then help them make their lives better with the tools that we have. And the tools could be experience cloud, or commerce cloud, or integration like me also for double me, whatever that might look like. It's not as relevant as the human business of understanding each other. So in theory, I could take what I teach and apply that to Microsoft Consulting or Siebel. And in in, in fact, I've had um, my course reviewed by uh, an ex-colleague doing Oracle and she said, you could teach this here as well. But, you know, sadly, I don't have any network or links there. And Salesforce is an exciting space to be in. So it is not, it's, it's not truly relevant to what cloud that's there. It's for anyone wanting to solve a business problem using a CRM platform. When people ask me about, you know, how I do what I do, the architecture and the, what you call the domain experiences, I would say only counts for 30% of what I do. And the, the building connections with people, the situational awareness, you know, critical thinking, these are factors that are almost equally as important as the technical knowledge that I have in Salesforce. On your website, you define six points that make an excellent consultant. And I was hoping we can go through each one of them. I'll list the six here first, and then I'll just ask you if you could give a quick definition for each one. The first one is domain excellence. The second one is business experience. The third is critical thinking. The fourth is ethical and professional behavior. The fifth is tools and processes. And the last one is emotional intelligence. So if you can give us just a quick definition of each one, what it means to you and how you can teach it, that would be great. As a consultant, you're expected to to know more than anyone else about this specific thing. So it's a given that you need to, whatever, whatever rocks your boat, if you love not-for-profit, just like yourself, then be an excellent expert in that area. That's the expectation when I'm leading a team. That's my base expectation of everyone, that you know your stuff. If you don't, you will find out what the answer is. That's what that means. Business experience sadly only comes with experience. If you have got yourself a role in a consulting partner and you have just been certified, you've just come from a different industry, you need to get that business experience under your belt so that you can answer questions like where the answer is 
it depends. It depends on the context. And this in this context, the answer is yes. In this other context, the answer is no. And be able to support your assertions as to why you think a certain way. But that comes with experience. Without that, you are kind of floundering. And um, when you're in consulting, your client is paying a lot for your knowledge, for your experience. And so that's the expectation that you have business experience. So for critical thinking, can it really be taught? I, I I believe so. I firmly believe so. As long as the other party has an open mind. But having an open mind also depends on how we approach an interaction. If we come to an interaction with an air of, I know better, I'm going to solve your problem, then people will not feel very safe in being vulnerable. So what I coach into my team is you just need to find a way to create a space that is very safe for the other party to listen to you. And when they're open to listening, then you can ask questions that allow them to examine their own biases, their own assumptions, their own perception. So that is the beginning of critical thinking. It's asking questions about how we think, about why we think the way we do. And only then, and only when we can get the answers that are satisfactory that are honest and candid, can we then begin to try and get to the bottom of whatever the issue is. So I I really believe it can be taught as long as the other person has got self-awareness and an open mind. With regards to ethics and professional behavior, this is something that all consultants need to have. It is doing what's right for the project. Sometimes as a project manager for a Salesforce consultant or any consulting company, I'm always squeezed between a rock and a hard place. So the client wants me to finish the project under budget within the timescales and with all the changes that they want. My company, which is a partner, will want me to try and increase the profit margin by making everything a change request over and above what was originally requested. I always try to look at the project as a whole and try and make sure that the decisions we make is the best one for the project, given the constraints, given the hard constraints that we have. It could be budget, it could be timeline or anything like that. But for me, it's easier for me to focus on the project and make sure that the ethics are in place for you know, to drive those sort of decision and professional behavior, things like making sure that the client doesn't see the furious flapping that goes underneath the watermark, uh, all the work that needs to be done to make sure that project is running well. So we are seen to be professional at all times and not, you know, be emotional, for example. Tools and processes just means the way of doing something. There are ways of doing things. There's the cowboy way. There's the shortcut way. There's the slapdash. Let's just get it in. Let's just do it in production. No one will know who's going to have time to do documentation way. And then there's the right way of doing things because, yes, this way of doing things takes longer, but it helps us in the long run because it provides governance, it provides auditing, it provides accountability. And when we want long-term relationship, we focus on having tools and processes that support that. People who don't 
focus on these sort of solutions by having um, the right tools and processes in place, they're doing a disservice to themselves and their clients. So as a consultant, there are tools and processes that needs to be followed for these reasons, because for me, quality is quite important. And finally, emotional intelligence. And that's quite a big, broad umbrella and a catch-all. Uh, broadly, it is there are four categories as defined by uh, Mr. Goldman. It is um, self-awareness, self-management, self-mastery or mastery of your emotions, so to speak. And there is social awareness and ability to create relationships. And I think that somebody who is self-aware, understanding where their gaps are, makes them very coachable and teachable, which makes them a very valuable of the team. Somebody who's able to manage the emotions are also someone who's really good consultant material. Somebody who is very socially aware allows them to tap into the richness of nonverbal and tacit communication that happens. I am a big fan of in-person workshops because there is a magic that happens when you are sitting face-to-face with someone that a Zoom call just cannot capture. The thing with COVID is that Zoom calls and Zoom workshops are now the norm and everyone's jumping on and say, right, we can hire everyone from around the world. Projects are becoming more global. Organizations are becoming more global. And therefore, it's becoming more ubiquitous to have workshops that are online that you can use Miro or FigJam or any of the online collaboration tools to work with. But I think it's missing. It's just missing the magic of nonverbals because a lot of people can (laughs) turn off videos or put on a different expression that they might have otherwise. So emotional intelligence allows somebody to tap into something extra. And in the new world, they are able to pay attention a little bit more to, let's say, that little person, that little picture on that screen that's not said anything to just say, hey, person, um, I noticed that you haven't um, commented on this. Uh, What do you think, given your background in X, Y, and Z? So emotional intelligence just allows a person to have that social uh, feelers, the ability to, to, to feel the energy of a room, whether it be an in-person one or whether it be uh, a virtual one. I do it online as well, but I'm feeling that it's just that much more challenging. If someone refuses to engage by turning off the video and not speaking, there's not very much you can do. Whereas if someone is sitting down in front of you, not engaging, you can read so much and then you can find a way to connect with them and find out and, you know, to just peel back the layers to find out why they're feeling that way and getting to the bottom of the problem. So that was my little rant about virtual thing, but I'm hoping that answers your question. It does. And I find the same thing. I mean, being in person, of course, you you get to see that dynamic you're able to be very present as well. You know, we have probably less distractions when we're in a yeah. meeting room together versus, you know, I have these big screens up here. I can have multitask while during a meeting. It's a very different element. But at the same time, you do have the possibility of getting people that are excellent that are outside of your normal network, you know, ge- geographically wise. 
So there's a balance between pros and cons. And I don't know which one is the the best choice, maybe a balance of the two. Mm. But there's definitely something to be said about having certain meetings in person. Absolutely. So we just covered these six elements. There's obviously a lot more that we could go for or discover and dig through. Unfortunately, we don't have all that time to do it. But I'm curious about one particular question is, if you could give advice to a new consultant working on a new project, imagine a scenario where the salespeople did their great job. They've now handed it off to the implementation team. And now you've got the lead consultant coming into the project with a new client. Are there any tips you could give that consultant to make sure that they give them, the client, the best possible first impressions to say, you know, don't worry, we got this. The professional versus silliness, like the structuring of the how the project's going to work from this point forward. Any kind of tips that you could give to that consultant? Well, I actually have 15. Um, wow. <laughs> okay. Maybe you could pick just for the yeah. sake of time, unfortunately. Maybe maybe one of your favorite ones, let's say. No. Okay. So I would say the key one, if there was just one, then I would say, which, which is why I tell my team and everyone that, uh, that I coach, is understanding expectations. I think that conflict happens uh, for two reasons. One is when people fight over limited resources. So let's just take that off the table. The second one is where expectations are not understood and are not met. So we can think about anything from breakups to divorce to relationship breakdowns to legal disputes. It's all about expectations. And having emotional intelligence means that you understand that someone will have specific expectations of the meeting, of how you conduct yourself, of what your company is going to deliver, or what the project is going to do, or what the software is going to give them. All of them, these are all expectations. And if you are able to tap into or see what they are expecting, then you can moderate what you're delivering to meet them if you can or to reset them if you have the authority to do so. So this can be applied anywhere 360. So it can be applied to your client, your project, your teammates, your project manager, your home manager, your reviewer, your HR, your company, all of that. Because once you understand, if your client's thinking, I'm expecting your team to come in, do this discovery, and you're going to go away, and then you're going to come back with a shiny new system for us to use, which will solve all our problems. Then if that is the expectation, then you you will realize there are some gaps there. It sounds like the client is not expecting to be putting in very much effort or resource into the process that's not going to be correct we're going to need them to review our documents to watch a show and tell to make decisions to look at documentation to help us steer the project in the right way so i'm going to have to tell them that this is what you're going to have to do not only that but you're going to have to put in a huge chunk of time to do the testing and to understand what we're trying to build for you so once you know where the gap is, you can put a plan to address that by additional comms, for example, or to create a closer relationship or any of those. You know, there are many, many tools 
uh, that you can use. But I would say the one biggest tip is to understand power of expectations and what you can do with that to make the project a really smooth one and to, you know, have a really good relationship with your peer on the client side and have relationship with your team. And I could go on on this topic. You have to stop me. <laughs> so that's obviously just one of the 15 things you can teach people to be a better consultant for first impression. So there's obviously a wealth of knowledge that you have on your website. Where can people find and reach you to get more information about this? I just discovered this lovely thing called Linktree. So it allows me to put some of the things that I want people to get to without having to troll through my website. It's uh, L-I-N-K-T-R dot E-E slash on the payroll, which is my handle. And then from there, that's a launching pad. It's like a, it's a single page where they can have or see multiple links and then go to your various platforms, I assume, right? Correct. Um, so one of the links there is the 15 tips for the new um, Salesforce consultant. I think it's called that, um, which is an ebook of yeah, 15 tips that I came up with early this year because I had uh, quite a few people in my team, or my students that I was training who were starting the new consulting role. And I thought I was I would write this for them. And um, I think a lot of people have found it useful. So yeah, you can go check it out. Awesome. Pete, thank you so much for joining me today. You are very welcome. It's been very, very fun to talk about all these things. Thank you. All right, folks, that's it for today. I'm Alexander Lapa, and I hope you join me again next time for Agents of Nonprofit.